0: I stay boundy, I'm not poutin, break through walls and climb it mountains. If you want it scream it loud louder, so this world would they in doubt. Never waking on the world to catch up to me, nah. leaving in the review. I wish that it was up to me, the world would never feel the Hey what's up everyone, it's Liam again from the Brain Tamer channel. Thanks for checking out another video. Appreciate you tuning in. Hope you've been enjoying the content. If it's your first time tuning in. Hopefully this video adds some value. For you Hopefully you like the way that I communicate and some of the ideas that I have. Uh, if you do, be sure to subscribe um, and happy days. We'll dive right in. So today I wanted to share some ideas around a conversation that is deeply important to me. Uh, it's getting a lot of airtime right now, particularly throughout 2020, given the whole COVID crisis, loneliness is at an all time high, whole host of other variables that ultimately impact what we're gonna be talking about today, which is of course, is mental health. I mentioned the airtime is getting at the moment, which is brilliant and the stigma around, you know, um, having been faced with with such challenges around anxiety, depression, PTSD, and a host of other mental disorders. Uh, I feel like that's slowly lifting, which is fantastic. A lot of the work we do here with uh, with Braintainment is to kind of bleed ideas or important conversations into into culture, into pop culture. So it seems like we're moving in the right direction. That said, there's a whole lot of information um, out there. There's no shortage of information on what to do or, or how to proceed in pretty much anything and that includes mental health and there are people far more equipped more professional well more versed in the science than I am, but this is my journey that I'm sharing on more specifically today that hopefully someone watching all this thing can find some value from and so getting to the point this video is ultimately about my own pillars of success if you will it's 12 pillars of mental health that for me, as soon as one falls down, things start to feel a little bit funky. But if all 12 are in place and I'm executing them well, then um, I'm up and about. Now, little side note, just to provide some context and relevance to anyone listening, particularly if you are currently facing or have faced in the past, really challenging bouts of depression, anxiety, things like that. Um, I'm speaking from my own experience. I'm not um, you know, reading from a pamphlet and sharing my version of what I've read. I'm sharing stuff that I've implemented off the back of one the curiosity because i like this conversation and i like the science around what to do and and whatnot um but more importantly i've had to implement things to to get myself out of out of holes of anxiety and depression in the past so um, i've shared content previously about a head trauma i sustained about five or six years ago um, diagnosed with post-concussion syndrome and a whole slew of challenges that brought on one of which was some real heavy struggles with depression um, you know crippling anxiety for a guy that's pretty confident um, in most things my nervous system was pretty cooked and the, my psychology was ultimately affected so I know what it feels like believe me I'm in the trenches with you guys when I'm talking from a um, when I'm talking on this subject of mental health so what do I do or what do I try to do to, to get myself in the zone, feeling good, happy, fulfilled, which is ultimately my North Star. Be sure to check out the content I've put out on my five core ideas. We should all be chasing fulfillment as our ultimate aim. Um, and if you've got poor mental health, then it's gonna be hard to do that. So here's what we need to get right. The first few are pretty obvious ones, but I'm just gonna give my take on it. And then we'll dive into some stuff that maybe you haven't considered um, that could have a dramatic impact on how well you feel on a daily basis. About yourself, about, about family, friends, about life, and and that whole situation. So, um, but we'll keep it basic and then we'll move into some more interesting stuff. The first pillar to get right is sleep. Seems pretty obvious, um, but it's insane how much people don't prioritize it. So I just wanna share a few ideas around um, what I do and my thoughts around sleep in general. The first thing to recognize is that optimal sleep is, is arguably the first variable to get right before we tackle anything else. Sleeping at night, I won't, I won't go too much into the science of it, but I think we all know um, it's a very replenishing replenishing process. It clears a lot of toxins from the day. It ultimately sets us up for the following day. I don't have to provide any science for you all to know, a poor night's sleep results in a, in a certain feeling the following day and a great night's sleep results in, a, in another completely contradictory feeling the following day. And of course we feel better when we sleep well. Our thought patterns are more coherent. You know, Our hormones are, well, uh, are more regulated and we can kind of execute the day accordingly. Um, Sleep has a really big impact on the amygdala, which is a part of the brain responsible for emotion. And it's actually the fear response. So poor sleep and whether it's low volume of hours or poor quality, um, any sort of disruption is gonna have an impact on the amygdala. So it's, it's, um, one of the obvious byproducts of that is some level of anxiety, you know, and heightened anxiety over a period of time, neural pathways start to rewire. Neurons that uh, that wire that fire together, wire together. That works for the the good habits we want to form, but it's also true for bad ones. And that's how anxiety, depression, poor thought patterns can become so rife, is because they're repeated so consistently over time. Um, so, so regulating the amygdala is one part of sleep, and of course, more broadly, uh, we know that it just has a positive impact on our emotional well-being. When we don't sleep well, we're fatigued, we're stressed, um, our cognitive function is quite low. So any sort of um, work work is, is quite draining and that further enhances that level of fatigue physically and mentally and emotionally and it becomes very cyclical once again. So getting sleep right is huge. I think we all know that. So the question then becomes, well, what the fuck do I do? How do I actually optimize my sleep? Um, and these are just some of the things that I've had to do because sleep for me has been, been an ongoing challenge since I was about 13, I reckon. Um, probably too many party nights out, you know, in my early teens. But uh, right now, I'm, uh, I'm a bit of a rock star when it comes to sleep. Far from perfect, but I'm super disciplined. And here's what I do: first of which is I make sure I'm in my rest and digest um, parasympathetic nervous system before I even go into bed. Right? No point lying in bed if your heart rate's up, your mind's racing. We um, need to do some things first before you slide into bed to create a positive association with bed. It really should be for sleeping and fucking. I'm putting it bluntly just to make, an, to make an impression, but ultimately bed should be reserved for falling around having a good time with your partner, or yourself, if you don't have someone, um, and for sleeping. Everything else um, should be done you know, outside of the bedroom, in my opinion. So the, the psychological association is for those two things. But it's really important that you re- you're rested and relaxed before getting into bed. So how do you do that? For me personally, it's a couple of things. Um, from a supplement side of things, um, it's a chamomile tea, about half an hour before bed. It's a chamomile tea with a quarter teaspoon of GABA, which is a concentrated neurotransmitter responsible for like, um, you know, the calming feeling essentially is the easiest way to explain that. Uh, So a bit of that and a bit of Reiki mushrooms. You can experiment with what works for you. But for me, that's the supplement side of things. In addition to magnesium tablets and some probiotics as well to kind of have a positive impact on my gut health and microbiome, which we'll talk about in a sec. Another way to kind of regulate that is meditation. I'm really big into this. I'm far from a guru, um, but I I put out some content previously with some guests on the podcast. Um, Shout out to Janoa, I had some great ideas around how to meditate and the benefits. So for me, meditation is huge. I don't like to do it just before bed. I do it sort of in the afternoon in addition to a light stretching, walk, yoga, some sort of lighter activity in the kind of late arvo, early evening just to kind of get blood flow moving. Um, And for me, it's very... It's allowing to get back into the parasympathetic nervous system. So yoga, meditation is really good. Journaling's another practice. So getting thoughts on paper, so they're not racing around in our head. Just things to really calm the nervous system before sliding into bed. Some of the obvious ones are like bedtime, keeping it regular and not too late. You want to have sufficient hours. You know, everyone varies, so I'm not, I'm not big on that. For me, where possible, I try not to set an alarm. You know, I have the luxury of doing that, working for myself. Um, obviously, not everyone has that luxury, but. Uh, where possible. You kind of want your body to awaken naturally. So uh, look for me, the bedtime is crucial. So anywhere between sort of, you know, 9.30 to 10.30 is when I want to be in bed. So some of these practices I'm talking about start prior to that. So regular bedtime is important. Um, Dark room, some people are scared of the dark. I can't help you there too much, but a dark room is really important um, as as well. Temperature is, is massive. So for me, I like to be a little bit cooler before I go into bed. If I'm quite hot, for me, that gets my heart rate up. I feel a bit funny in the head. Um, I, I get a little bit more anxious. I don't like that. I like to be a bit more cool, and for me, that's relaxing. So, so if you experiment with it, but get the right temperature and then do what you need to do to kind of keep that regulated every, every night consistently. Blue light, we hear a lot about, um, you know, affects some people differently than others. Some people aren't too affected. I am, so I have blue light glasses if I'm on my computer, phone, you know, watching a TV program before bed. Um, just be really aware of the blue light that actually impacts the circadian rhythms and melatonin production, which should, should start around 9 p.m. As a general rule for humans, we start feeling a little bit more tired um, and melatonin is secreted. That's assuming that our circadian rhythms are healthy. So just avoiding too much blue light is really important, particularly if you're struggling with your sleep. Um, which then brings me to something a little bit more extreme to consider if your sleep's completely fucked right now is look at doing a no-tech 90. So for 90 minutes before you go to bed, no phones, no TV, no computer, you know, do a puzzle, have a chat with your friend, um, bang your partner, whatever's gonna work, Um, but just avoid the technology for 90 minutes consistently and see if that has an impact. For me, it did, and then I slowly brought in things like, you know, my favorite TV program before bed, maybe a little bit of emailing. You got a trial and error, but just be very aware of it. And then two more just uh, quickly, one of which is getting light in the morning. That regulates the circadian rhythms I was talking about earlier, right? So there's a natural increase in cortisol, which actually wakes the body up naturally. Um, So we can hear the barking in the background. It sounds like Kylo the the dog here is agreeing uh, or disagreeing. Um, But circadian rhythms are regulated um, a lot by sunlight. Um, So the cortisol level rises around, I think it's 5 a.m. for for the healthy human. which is is what should wake us up naturally. By getting outside, getting the body moving and getting light exposure, it helps set the circadian rhythms up for the day, such that we should hit that melatonin production around 9 p.m. to start kind of feeling a bit naturally sleepy to have a nice slumber. So that's a theory anyway, right? By getting morning light and sort of moving the body early in the day is an easy practice, something tangible to do to optimize sleep. So give that some consideration, particularly if that's a, a, a problem area for you. Um, and then the final piece of the puzzle for me is the psychological side of things, right? spoke about the association between bed and sleep, having the right uh, psychology around things is huge. So for me, a big issue is I felt like I always had to do all these things. I had to do these things to try and get the right sleep. And while that might be true, flipping the script and kind of adopting a new narrative is super empowering. And the way I do that is looking at it and taking pride in it and speaking about it passionately, aggressively, not just on camera here, but with, in conversations with mates, family, anyone who pokes fun at the fact that I go to bed at the same time or prioritise and have my herbal supplements and all that stuff. I couldn't give two fucks because optimising sleep is so important for my mental health and then obviously everything else, all the things I want to do, the way I want to show up with um, you know, friends, family, customers, my partner, all that stuff. So flip the script and take real pride in these things that we're outlining. Don't look into things that you have to do from a, fa- a passive point of view, adopt them as principles you live by, which we'll talk about in a moment in terms of building an identity. Um, and so sort of look at yourself as a rock star for making these a priority. So that's sleep. The second pillar of mental health is optimizing our gut health. Now this is a fun one. I, really, I could riff on this for hours, but I wanna keep it as kind of to the point as possible. The first thing to recognize is that there is a gut brain connection. It's not hyperbole or just a theory thrown out there. It's facts. Um, there is a cranial one of the longest cranial nerves actually runs directly from the brain to the, to the stomach, which is the the vagus nerve. Okay. Now what's really interesting is that of course we know the brain regulates almost everything in our body. It's the most crucial organ. Um, we think of it as calling the shots and for the most part it is but funnily enough, along that vagus nerve and between that communic- uh, the communication between the stomach and the brain, of all the information coming down, so from the brain to the stomach, there's actually 10 times more information that's been measured going the other way. So if we get the right gut health going on, it would make sense there, there in that we're going to have an impact some way or another on our brain functionality, which of course is going to be, um, you know, uh, have an impact on our, our psychology, the, the, our mindset. There's a lot of research coming about the microbiome and the impact that that has, all the, you know, the natural bacteria. I don't know enough about it to share confidently, but just look into that a bit more and just know that it's um, important. There is a gut lining that we have, which is actually quite similar to the lining of our brain, the blood-brain bar- blood barrier. So often when there's issues with the gut and there's issues with that gut lining, um, there's a similar impact with the blood-bain barrier and some of the issues around the brain. So that can have a real impact on our mental health, okay? It can impact the, the neurotransmitters and the and the nervous function, health, nervous system function um, in all kinds of ways. Though I won't speak too much on because I'm a bit out of depth, but just know that getting our gut health right is huge. So what do we do about it? Um, Here's some dot point kind of tactics, I suppose. First one's pretty obvious, eat whole foods. With all respect, if your mental health is, is problematic for you, if it's not, this is not the video for you. Uh, unless of course you use this information to help someone you care about. Um, but if it is problematic or it has been in the past and you don't eat well, that's it is on you. And that's that sense of agency is impairing when you realise a lot of these problems are actually self-inflicted. <clears throat> Getting our diet right is fucking massive. It's it, it's probably yeah, hence the order of this conversation. It's second of importance in terms of pillars for mental health from my perspective in terms of what's controllable. To sleep, eat whole foods, vegetables, a little bit of fruit, not too much. Um, you know, I'm a meat eater, so you know, healthy amount of meat, grass-fed beef organic chicken, things of that nature, was reducing hormones and, and things like that. So I'm not a dietitian, so I won't go into it too much, but just eating real food as opposed to something made in a fucking lab that lasts for 14 years for the preservatives. I'm all having a good time and every now and then you'll catch me with you know something I shouldn't be eating, but for the most part, having the right diet is huge. So just look at, do a bit of an order of what you're currently eating, how much of it is real food, and you might draw some conclusions from that. So eating raw, uh, real food is huge. The second idea is to prioritize digestion. So for anything like me, I'm very go, go, go. And I'm often stuck in the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight, which getting shit done at times is okay, but then it gets draining and it has its own cycle of of issues. But often what that means is it leaves very little time to rest and relax, be calm and creative um, to eat our food, which is the state we should be in when we're eating. I'm kind of scoffing stuff down from time to time. We're not going to have great digestion if that's the case. We should be in the parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system relaxed, when we're eating our meals, our snacks, um, to allow for good digestion, such that we don't have bloating, you know, um, any, some, any other issues that come from poor digestion, I suppose, uh, such that the natural byproducts, that, that is, is a positive impact on our psychology, right? On our brain. The third tip is a fun one, super easy, is to gargle. I remember doing this as a seven-year-old kid, when my folks would make me do it, and then just stop because it seemed ridiculous. I've implemented it again as a 30-year-old recently. Every time I brush my teeth, I make sure at the end of it, I gargle three times. I'm activating my vagus nerve we were talking about earlier, which is responsible for being able to shift between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. it certainly has an impact on that anyway. So gargling, or laughing, we talk about laughter being the best medicine. It's because we're activating the diaphragm is essentially what's happening there, right? Opening up the diaphragm, it's getting in more oxygen, there's a whole host of, there's a real myriad of things going on um, when we're activating this kind of, the the diaphragm and the the vagus nerve. So gargling is one way, laughing is another way. The Om sound with yoga might sound a bit too woo woo for you, but it's something that I've incorporated recently purely for the sound I'm making and the impact on this whole area, such that it impacts this whole area, my psychology, right, my mental health. So give that some thought. Fourth idea is to look at your macros. I mean, I'm not a dietitian or a trained you know physician, so maybe connect with someone who is more experienced. Um, but just have a look at it. You know, for me personally, I find that I think we all know sugars are no good, but even too much carbohydrate, particularly the starchy ones particularly if you're not exercising a whole lot as well, that carbohydrate turns to sugar very quickly. There's some crazy stats about how quickly um, a loaf or like a a slice of bread turns to blood glucose almost immediately once it hits your tunnel, it's it's crazy. So um, that's gonna create excess sugars and insulin spikes. And insulin spikes are not what we want, those up and down crashes leads to fatigue, physical drain, it's gonna impact our brain, and of course, the way we think, and our, our psychology, which is what we're talking about here, our mental wellbeing is going to become shot. It's gonna become a lot more challenging if we're sort of energetically like this, okay? Um, so just look at macros. For me, I prioritize fats and proteins where possible, but again, maybe just experiment it and see what works for you, okay? So that's gut health. The third pillar is having a clear purpose and intention. I go riff on this for so fucking long, it's so important. But look, effort without intention is fatigue. It's a very clear recipe. I did a video recently, um, which I'll just sort of highlight really quickly now, but maybe check out that video on what you secrete dopamine around. So what I mean by that is, um, if you're just kind of exerting effort, going to work, you know, doing your chores, looking after family, if you've got it, whatever, you're, ex- you're secreting norepinephrine, right? Which happens with any level of effort. If that's not counteracted by some other neurotransmitters like dopamine, adrenaline, which comes when you feel like you're in pursuit when you feel like there's a reward or an outcome or you're enjoying the process, then it just gets depleting and our mental health gets shot. So it's really important you feel like there's purpose and intention behind the work you do on a daily basis, whatever that looks like. Also, we talk more broadly about you know having a purpose in life. Those conversations are a little bit more esoteric, but super important. And that can shift and change over time. So it's not about having the answer right now. And I'll talk about how to cultivate purpose and passion in a sec, which is kind of one of the two sort of key ideas in this section here. Okay, the first one of which though is this idea of ikigai, that the Japanese talk a lot about, and was actually highlighted in the Lost Connections book. Um, it's talking about the blue zones in, around the world, so areas of the world with the most centenarians, people who live over a hundred. Working at what's what is constituting, what's common. Uh, what's a common thread in those places that's allowing for this obviously good health such that they could live for such a long time? And the most common denominator there was um, what the Japanese call in this um, town of Okinawa, I think it was, is, a, is an idea of ikigai, which I think the loose translation is a reason for getting out of bed in the morning. Even if it was something as simple as I make or I go fishing to create a supply of fish for the local community. There's a purpose behind it. And they're very clear on that. There's no uncertainty. We know clarity equals power and the indecision is the thief of joy and the thief of opportunity. So having clear intention and purpose allows for better decision-making and more precision. And it's easy to stay in that momentous cycle, right? This constant back and forth is not good. So purpose is really powerful and the science is in, right? It helps us live longer, lives more fulfilling lives. The question then becomes, well, how do I get that? Well, I can tell you one thing, it's not lying dormant under your fucking pillow waiting for you to discover it. It needs to be cultivated, in my opinion, in any way. And there's, there's a number of ways to kind of look at this, I suppose. But for me, a really cool practice is this. And I stole this idea, I suppose, from my homie Tom Bilyeu, who is a fantastic um, you know, entrepreneur in this space, I suppose, to so check out his work. He's my main dude. Um, but loose translation is this, right, to cultivate passion. It's kind of getting heated up. So it's going to take my jacket off. Step one is to firstly list the things that you're interested in. People often say to me, and I find myself saying this to myself often, is like, oh, if I'm in a rut, I don't know what I'm interested in, I'm not passionate. There are fucking things that you're interested in, even if you're in a depleting state. We just have to be optimising our, you know, our nutrition, our body, short about in a sec, our sleep, to start moving in the right direction and start to realise there are things that we are interested in. Not passionate about, but interested in. It could be knitting. It could be playing Xbox. It could be going out with friends. It could be talking extraneously on camera like this, trying to add value or build a platform. They're things that you're interested in. Write them the fuck down. Step two is to start exploring those, right? What are some of these things? And you're going to find one of two outcomes as you start to go down that path. One, you're going to hate it. And then you realize that's not really the kind of the area for you that you want to dive into and spend a lot of time in. That's okay. At least now you know, and you're more in the direction of clarity and, and away from indecision because you've kind of removed that as an option, if that makes sense. I hope this is kind of getting through. Um, or the second outcome is you're going to really enjoy what you're doing. And that interest is going to turn into a fascination, right? You're going to fascinated with something. The more I study the brain, which to start off as an interest to learn more about how to improve my own psychology and function after a head trauma, um, the more I kind of explore that, that turned into a bit of a fascination. I wanted to learn more and I wanted to learn more about stuff that wasn't even relevant for me. I just became interested in the brain and the impact on, you know, how humans show up in the world, whatever that is for you, go down that path and go down that path and fan those flames of fascination until it ultimately becomes a passion. Now, something that's really crucial is two things. One is time. So time to allow new neural pathways to kind of, wire, neurons that wire together, fire together, wire together, just a cool phrase to keep in mind. So time is an important variable, um, but deliberate practice is huge and seeing progress. It's not a matter of just doing something randomly. You need to see constant improvement um, and allow time. So for example, someone like LeBron James, albeit at a young age, yes, he discovered his passion, but he essentially found something he was interested in, which was basketball, turned into a fascination. He found those flames and then over time of that fascination Flaming, if that makes sense. Um, he got better and better and better. He saw progress. And over time, this has turned to this insane passion for him. So if we want that in our own lives, we can follow that recipe, whatever it looks like for you. But it starts with interests. So that's something tangible to work with in terms of building purpose and intention into our life. It's, it's less about an archaeological dig for what's our deep purposes and more about an architectural build into what we want to do. Hopefully that lands. And then the final piece on that really quickly is just to consider the negative uh, impact of disruptions and distractions. I've got no beef with social media, but I've spoken about this a couple of times in recent posts, I suppose. to it's so easy to get addicted to that dopamine hit of looking for a notification on email, social, you know, whether it's a like, comment, engagement, whatever it is, because we're craving the feeling. We only ever do anything for a feeling, right, as human beings. And we're looking for that dopamine spike to feel a bit better. Um, and then that becomes quite addictive, hence where we're just scrolling on social. And I, I don't know if you can um, relate, but I reckon you can. So, a really cool practice to consider is dopamine fasting. So it does a couple of things, you become less addicted. So it means you can kind of regulate your decision-making a lot more easy instead of being kind of falling victim to just reacting and and, and habits of doing things that just don't serve you. But it allows you you time to think clearly to then be intentional. This is all what we're talking about, being intentional about what we do. It's a really, really powerful practice. And then that gets into the idea of mindfulness, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, But that's a really cool piece to consider. Challenge yourself to check your phone a certain amount of times a day, three or four. Sounds trite um, and easy, and it is easy, but it's super powerful. You, rel- you relinquish yourself from those dopamine spikes up and down, and you allow time to think about what's going to make sense, what decisions need to be made, and allows you to pursue that idea we were talking about earlier about you know, interest, fascination, passion. It allows you to go down that path more easily without all the silly distractions. So give that some thought too. The fourth one, the fourth pillar of mental health, it's super important and something that we're seeing a lack of in 2020 uh, is connection and community. I feel like I don't talk about this enough on my little platform, you know, that I have now. Um, but community and connection is huge. I think I talk about it less because it's not as sciencey, or at least it doesn't seem that way. Um, but that's that's funnily enough, that's not entirely true. We as human species, we're a social creature. We're driven to connect. We're driven to be social. And if you trace that back to our ancestry and you understand the neurochemistry that's sort of been cultivated as a result of that, if we were ostracized from the group, if we were isolated, if we were lonely, it could mean certain death. It could be eaten by a saber tooth tiger, could fall into a fucking lake or a cliff. But way back when all kinds of shit was going down um, and that becomes hardwired into our nervous system, right? So we are social creatures. We see 2020 come along, a lot of us are working from home, we're restricted from friends and family. Obviously we can connect virtually, but it's just not the same as in person. We'll talk about some stuff in a sec, but that lack of connection is um, unbelievably important. and something I haven't recognized until recently, um, just how crucial that is. So do an audit. How much time are you spending by yourself, vis-a-vis with people? And I don't mean just being in the presence of people and you stocks stuck and how are you going? Yeah, good, yeah, good, you, fuck that shit have more meaningful conversations, connect on a deeper level. It doesn't have to be fluffy, but just be real. Take down the facade, the ego, and just seek that true connection. Um, A really cool study that came out of, um, I think it was Canada. And I read this in a great book called The Stress Solution by Dr. Chatterjee. I think he's a British author. Check it out. Um, Anyway, it's all about relieving stress, but one of which, one of the pillars for that, I suppose, is he talks about connection. The study in Canada was measuring uh, how much waiters were tipped when they would do their thing at a restaurant normally, vis-a-vis when they would do their thing and present the, the, the bill at the end with their hand on the client or the customer's back, a gently friendly, you know, socially respectable um, touch, human touch, so an increased sense of connection. Long and short of that is their tips went up something like 30%. So what does that show us? The increase in whether it's serotonin, whatever that emotional status, I suppose, created in the customer as a result of the touch meant that they wanted to give more, they felt more kind, they felt more, they felt better clearly such that they wanted to contribute more, okay? So we know that it has an impact on others when we're connecting with them. Funnily enough though, Additional studies have been done, and there's a whole post that won't bore you right now, just take my word for it, to show that more often than not, there's a a greater increase in, again, whatever those neurotransmitters are, a greater increase in feeling better through connection from the giver than there is the receiver, right? So making an effort, super tangible ideas, sending a kind text to a friend or family member we haven't spoken to in a while, staying, uh, staying in the conversation longer to ask more meaningful questions, things of that nature, Um, it's just an easy way to start putting daily practices in place to optimize our mental health. It's not the cure or none of these are silver fucking bullets, but put together, they add up to something pretty special. Um, hence why they're my 12 pillars. So connection is huge. So what are some other ideas and how to cultivate more connection in our world? The first one's really easy. Schedule social gatherings, right? Not just piss ups where again, it's that same old, same old conversation. How you going? Good, good, you, you, you and then you just smack a bunch of piss um, or do a bunch of drugs or whatever you're into, you know, I've been there. It's fun, I get it. But as you get older more in particular, and if you start experiencing some of these mental health challenges, they need, we need to really prioritize some of these pills that are actually gonna get us to a good place. For our North Star, which is to feel good, right? Everything else is bullshit. If you're not actually feeling good, particularly when you're by yourself, right? That should be a really, really um, guiding light for us all. Schedule dinners, get togethers, with all, you know, all your friends and family, weekly basis, at least fortnightly. Again, if you do an audit and you just look at 2020 in particular, very few of us have had a massive, you know, list of um, social gatherings in our calendar, which is probably why we're seeing a lot of the numbers of anxiety, depression, mental health challenges go through the roof. It's, I mean, among other variables, that's a large part of it is the lack of connection. The second idea to start implementing is physical touch. Firstly, obviously it's a bit more challenging in these COVID times, but we're appropriate. Friends, family, even strangers, again, we're appropriate. Um, Physical touch, handshake, um, cuddles, kiss on the cheeks. You know what's socially appropriate in, in your circles, but incorporating physical touch is really, really powerful. Now, if you have a partner or if you don't have a partner and you haven't had sex in a long time and you're an adult, I'm telling you that's contributing to some mental health challenges. Again, it's not entirely the problem, but physical touch is so powerful. Of course, there's the endorphin rush that comes from orgasms, we all know being a little bit playful um, but this is super it is really important stuff prioritizing sex with your partner if you're single just trying to connect with you know the right person obviously and we can have fun with that conversation but just physical touch is huge um, and having you know a good sex life is a really important in my opinion for um for good mental health just one thing to get right to at least move us in the right direction of having a good neuro a good cocktail of neurochemistry to work with hopefully that lands okay another idea is to contribute okay there's a deep need for humans obviously to connect, but also to contribute. It's one of the six core needs that Tony Robbins talks about a lot, but contribution is huge. Look, it's it over-indexes more in others than more, more in some than others. Um, but all of us to some extent want to contribute. We have this need for it, right? Even right now, um, I wanna I want to be adding value, and in doing so, I feel a little bit more like my spirits are lifted, even if no one watches. It feels like I'm trying to contribute the same way the person leaving the tip in that uh, waiter example, feels like they're contributing a bit more um, up the back of physical touch. Again, it's all very cyclical. So rather moving in the right direction, we're moving in, the, in a downward spiral. So all these things are worth considering, um, but give that some thought, okay? Two more quick ideas, one of which is to have stimulating conversations. You don't have to be the, an, an, an intellect from, Arch, um, from Harvard um, or have the most insightful ideas or be the, the next Elon Musk. But um, having stimulating conversations is really, really um, cool. For me, it is super intoxicating to go back and forth about some ideas. Even if I disagree with someone, uh, I'm coming from a place of curiosity, wanting to learn. And if they are the same as well, then that is a recipe for um, just feeling really cool, in my opinion. So give that some thought, prioritize stimulating conversations. If you want to connect with me anytime, hit me up. I'll go toe to toe with you on all kinds of philosophical ideas and um, hopefully get some value from it, I reckon you will. And then that other idea was to to be present, right? In the moment, mindfulness, we're gonna talk about it more specifically soon, but be present. Someone's having a conversation with you, be in the moment, take it in. Um, It just allows for a deeper connection, right? It can sound woo woo, but I'm telling you the science is in too. Connection through just some of the ways I'm outlining here, there's many others, is paramount and should be, if it's not already in our lives it needs to be implemented. So give some thought to how you can kind of architect these ideas into your world more consistently. The next pillar is exercise and movement. We're gonna keep this short and sharp because there's a world of content around, you know, the link between exercise and um, mental health, but the endorphins and neurochemical cocktail that it creates for the better is, um, I think we all know that, right? It also creates BDNF, brain derived nootropic factor, which assists with neural growth and neural pathways realigning. So, if we're trying to make changes in our skill set or behaviors and our, our thinking patterns, for that to happen, BDNF plays a role in that. So, exercise is an easy way to create, to kind of create the platform, I suppose, for those changes to take place. Okay. We spoke before about the gut um, setting 10 times more information to the brain than the brain. Um, Sending to the gut. The same with our body in general. There's ten times more information coming from the body. This input into our brain to process, to then do what it needs to do. So moving the body and adjusting our biology, our physiology is really, really important. Which is why I talk about movement, sleep, diet so much because we have control over these things. Um, and it just sets the, sets the environment for the less tangible stuff to really have the benefit it needs to as well. Come on, other ideas on, on exercise is to really kind of, to make it land. If you're not already motivated to, to build exercise practices into our life, um, it serves as a healthy distraction at the very least, going for a walk, having a hit of tennis, we'll talk about playing in a moment, but moving the body serves as a healthy, healthy distraction to just disrupt the negative thought patterns one really obvious thing, um, but because we're engaged with the heart rate up a little bit, it's easy to get distracted to just try and pivot our thought pattern at the blink of an eye when we're just sitting stationary. So getting moving is, is really, really important. And we know that neurons are fired together, wired together. So if we start exercising regularly, we get that, that endorphin rush, albeit it doesn't last for days and days, but it, it, it in the moment, at the very least, it can make us feel proud. It can make us feel um, like we've, d- we've stuck to our disciplines, but of course, just the natural cocktail of of dopamine, serotonin production, all that good stuff that's taking place. We're training our nervous system. The more we do that, to get used to that feeling. So neurons that wire together fire t- wire, that fire together wire together. Always get that mixed up. Um, <clears throat> exercise is an easy way to get our nervous system more familiar again with positive feel good chemistry. So, what are some things to do? other than just exercise, what does that look like? Easy things to consider that maybe you haven't already, dancing. So for me, if I'm a bit of a funk throughout the day, particularly in the afternoon, easy way to get myself up and about, chuck on my favorite song, maybe a drizzy uh, rap track or maybe some Spanish dance music, whatever it might be. And I'll just dance around um awkwardly and just get the body moving almost like an expressive manner it's that movement it's a shift of of physiology that's having a direct impact on our brain we know it's sending information up right so moving the body to music is an easy practice to build into your day if you're not already look at doing yoga as well helps with blood flow and helps reduce inflammation which can impact anxiety and depression um symptoms so just give that some thought too. build some yoga practices into your day and then regular sport it's an easy way to get the heart rate up and get the body moving in a fun way so whether it's tennis golf um you know football cricket netball fucking croquet probably less than something more intense than that to get the body moving um in a, you know a more proficient way um but there's just some ideas to make sure we've got exercise now in our, in our calendars this next pillar is scheduling in play and fun i can't tell you how much um, I sh- had struggled with this, which may come as a surprise to some. I mean, some people might think I'm boring as fuck, but I th- some have suggested that I'm quite energetic and playful and whatnot, and, and I really am. However, trying to schedule playing and fun it just sounds so passive when I'm like, I need to know the, the science of how to adjust the, you know, the, the chemistry in my brain and things of that nature, which funnily enough, if you just chill the fuck out sometimes, that takes care of itself. So again, do audit over the last couple of months. Where have you got play and just fun um, and enjoyment of life showing up in your in your calendar? And that could be really telling. So what does that look like? Well, I think it's important to have a list of things that you can call on to save the, the cognitive um, brain power required to make those decisions on the day. A list to call on when you've got the time We wanna schedule the time to do something just for fun. What that looks like for all of us is going to differ. For me, I like to have a top 10 things. And just to lift off, list off a couple of examples, is I love movies. So um, you know, just, just create an environment, ideally going to the cinemas. So I can't wait for them to open up again. By myself, go class, bow out a little bit, and watch the latest movie. For me, that's kind of self-indulgent and I guess a self-care practice. To have fun something else i like to do um, is to have dinner so it goes back to that connection side of things i like to catch up for dinner have a nice glass of red with friends and family and have those stimulating conversations i find that really just intrinsically rewarding and fun recently i've been playing um, gaming i haven't been into gaming since the super nintendo so i've just got back into it at 30 years of age and sort of goofing around when i've got some time for no other reason I'm not trying to advance my life or feel this need of progression that's required just doing it purely for the fun um, and that's been really cool as well. So just tinker with it and try error. And what are the things that bring you joy and make sure that you schedule that in. For me, tennis is, and golf is huge as well, which g- goes hand in hand with the connection side of things and the movement side of things. So a lot of these correlate. So um, work out what those fun things are for you and call on them and make sure they're in your calendar if you're not already doing them naturally, have fun. The other idea to consider with this is where can you derive a sense of playfulness in the work you do? a lot of the people that are on my podcast recently, um, as a a real common theme that comes up in terms of they love what they do, is a sense of playfulness. I remember Olivia Vivian, the Australian uh, Ninja Warrior, I had her on the show and she was talking a lot about going through this rut. She's sort of ticked a lot of milestones off but went into a bit of a rut. But when she reconnected with the joy of it and the movements that she would do with her body and her training and added a sense of playfulness, she was able to take what she's doing to the next level. So for all of us, regardless of the work you do, Get really creative with how you can architect a playfulness into your daily routine, particularly if you spend half your waking hours at your work environment. Become childlike again. Go for a walk down the local park at the playground, um, you know, and obviously in the the right way, look at the kids and they, they have this fucking unbridled enthusiasm, which is intoxicating. And if you really kind of marinate it and sit there and observe it, for me anyway, I've found that it's exciting, it's cool, but it's also deeply troubling at times because it almost holds up a mirror and reflection of how lacking that's been in our own lives. How serious we can take life and situations and the decisions we need to make vis-a-vis this enthusiasm, this lust for life that children seem to have and this real presence in the moment. So where can we cultivate that more in our lives? And again, this stuff I don't talk about a lot because it just seems so passive and I'm like a fucking get up and go kind of guy. Um, But that's not always the answer. Sometimes just having a sense of playfulness is the key, which adds up to that North Star of fulfillment, right? We need to to enjoy our life. So build that in any way possible. And then of course, laughter, prioritize laughing. Go to comedy shows, watch comedy movies, have funny conversations. If your family and friends are boring as shit, find new ones. you know, be with people that make you laugh is really important. So a couple of ideas in terms of what to do, I suppose. If you find yourself kind of looking for something to fill the time, don't rely on tech. It's okay to do some gaming from time to time if you enjoy that, but don't jump on social to pass the time. I'm guilty of this. I know that you're fucking guilty of this. Part of my aggression, I get really passionate when I talk about stuff that I really believe in. Um, But just don't fall to technology to distract you. Look for something to immerse in instead, right? Again, for me, that might be golf or tennis. Um, could be going for a walk. Could be going for a job. It could be um, putting on a movie, not just scrolling through a social media, but putting on a movie to laugh. Um, could be just calling someone you haven't spoken to in a while and playing some sort of game or having an intricate or stimulating conversation I've spoken about. So prioritizing immersion over destruction. Okay, the seventh pillar. This is where we get into the, the fun stuff that I just like want to jump through the fucking camera hole that's staring at me because um, I feel so passionate about these ideas. And I think this may be the missing link for you potentially. It was for me anyway. So let's dive in. The seventh pillar is to welcome and at times prioritise and encourage discomfort and adversity. So what do I mean by that? There's a whole myriad of, of cool quotes I could throw at you, like only through challenge that we fashion for greatness and you know, diamonds are made under the the weight of mountains and things like that, which, you know, they're cliches um, and they're cliches because there's some truth. They hold some power to them. Um, But if we sort of bring that all down, like what does that really mean? What can you do with that? Why does that, why should that matter for you listening or watching right now? Why should that matter for you listening or watching right now? And it comes down to this. I feel like I have a multitude of catchphrases that I'm starting to really, throw out into the on on this platform but one of the biggest is has it has to be this how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself is all that matters your reputation with yourself is far superior than your reputation with family friends certainly fucking strangers that we can often get trapped into trying to please some more than others um and obviously social media just throws fire on that throws gasoline on that fire i should say But how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself really matters. So, when you have discomfort and a sense of adversity and some troubles, and you work through that and you get through that and you take it on and you come out the other end with a sense of resilience, you have a greater sense of pride, in my opinion. This has been the case for myself anyway, right? When you know what you're doing behind closed doors when there's no applause, when no one's watching, no one knows but you, and you do hard things and you, you welcome and, and work through discomfort with intention, with clarity, things we've spoken about previously, your sense of self-worth naturally increases because you have a sense of confidence in your ability to overcome problems. It's a sense of self-worth that can't be fucked with. And I promise you, again, it's not the silver bullet but this sense of self-worth and your belief that you can overcome almost anything based on not just a mantra that we say, but on evidence based on history of showing up a certain way, overcoming the challenges, welcoming it and, and, and not just falling victim to those circumstances, but actually executing the disciplines that we talk about here over and over and over again when no one's looking and you work through the discomfort of that, you increase this reputation, you help with yourself. I promise you, there's at least some positive impact on our mental health. It's going to help alleviate the potency of anxiety, of depression. It's going to help stop the cycle of, of spiraling out of control when you have that sense of self-respect, knowing that you work through discomfort. Does that make sense? I really hope it does. I don't know if I'm articulating it well enough, but let me give you some examples of what I intentionally build into my routine, I suppose, that there's no universe in which I would take them away from what I do right now. The first of which is cold showers in the morning. I get a lot of flack for this, but whether it's the pool in the backyard in the middle of winter or, or, or a cold shower itself, cold exposure in the morning is so huge. The whole host of physical benefits, um, which is just its own sort of um, reason to do to have cold exposure in the morning, wakes you up, you feel fresh, It genuinely helps alleviate symptoms of anxiety. Um, It can certainly help in the moment of like debilitating depression to sort of change the state momentarily. Again, trial and error with stuff that's going to work for you, but a consistent daily practice of cold showers, potentially above all else, you start the day doing something hard, right? You have a level of self-respect with I do hard things. I'm the kind of person that does hard things and it starts to cultivate this new sense of identity, which identity governs almost everything we do, right? We'll talk about that in a moment. But cold showers is one practice I encourage you to do. If you do, and you're not already, hit me up and let me know what you think. Even if you say, leave me a cockhead, I hate it. Maybe give it three or four weeks and then come back to me and just let me know what you think. Exercise, there's another idea of, um, particularly if it's not a regular practice for us, It's discomfort, right? And it's a level of um, adversity, I suppose, uh, that we've brought upon ourselves that has a benefit. We do it to increase the muscle. We do it to feel a certain way. It's the same with almost everything in our life. Situations, right? Nothing is good or bad. It's a perception that makes it so. So something takes place that either you can control or you can't. Your approach and how you handle it, you certainly can control. So if you do that consistently, again, you just further add the plus one, plus one, plus one to your sense of self, your identity, how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. All these things add up. So this is where a discomfort is really cool. Learning a new skill is another thing to consider doing, right? whether it's learning another language, learning to speak on camera, learning, to, learning how the brain works learning to um, step in between stimulus and response so you don't get angry and lash out at people. Maybe it's learning to code if you want to move into a different career or whatever it might be, but learning a new skill and challenging the neural pathways. Yes, it's harder when you're an adult than when you're a kid. Your brain is more plastic when you're a child than as an adult, but it's still plastic enough for for it to be malleable and for you to make changes. So learning a new skill is really annoying and hard, but by doing that, again, further enhancing that sense of self. Another idea is to speak your truth. I, I know how that sounds. It can get um, very kind of mystical and esoteric, which is fine. I like am all for the spiritual side of things as well. What I mean by this, if I have an opinion on something that is inherently important to me, that I'm not backing that, I'm not backing down for anyone. I don't have to challenge and argue against everyone, but I'm not changing my disciplines. If I've chosen to. Um, you know, have cold showers in the morning and people laugh at me, I couldn't give a fuck because I only care about my reputation with myself, not with other people. And I really hope that message lands potentially more than anything else we're sharing here today. So speak your truth. What do you believe in? What disciplines do you want to adhere to? Um, What social norms do you want to see shattered that you think are ridiculous? Um, You know, within some very obvious universal boundaries of like the law and moral situations, operate by what your idea of a good world and a a good way to live is. I can't encourage that enough. Then a couple other ideas around this this discomfort sort of pillar that you can implement into your routine uh, and start executing. Uh, One is to eat the frog, right? Brian Tracy wrote a book, uh, I think it was around more of a sales environment, but eating the frog basically is this whole story, I won't bore you, it's an analogy. Uh, It means to do the hardest thing in the morning, do it the first thing in the day. If you've got something on your to-do list, whether it's in your work day or your personal life, Um, unless something else is, is urgent and has to get done in a certain time period, prioritize the hard thing, get it done, alleviate the stress from sitting in the back of your mind, breathe momentum going in the day, everything else is easier So eat the frog. Again, an, uh, an example of where discomfort is a really good thing. And then another example, which goes in what we've also been talking about around some of the other pillars is it can be hard to change habits. So the more that you set your bedtime and stick to it, set your wake-up time and stick to it, eat the right food, exercise when you say you're going to exercise, all those things, speak your truth, like all these ideas, the more you do that, um, the, the, the more they become habitual. And we operate very habitually as humans. Uh, we take the path of least resistance. So our brain is essentially one of its many functions is to help us not think when we do things. So the, the more we can make these habitual the better and for that to happen to have to be repeated. And it means going through that discomfort, that adversity at first for that to actually take place for the neural pathways to realign. The eighth pillar is somewhat similar and it's this idea of boundaries or bright lines. Really specifically, here's what I mean. You should have written down somewhere, in my opinion, what your bright lines are that you do not go out of. For example, for me personally, um, one of my bright lines now is that I don't do illicit drugs. I'm just going to speak really truthful. This may resonate with you. You may not have any experience. You know, they might not resonate with you at all. But um, for me, it's something I don't do. I have done a lot of it previously, but it just leaves an array of physical challenges and then obviously psychological. And so for me, I just don't do it. It's a bright line, no matter who I'm with. I've got no beef. I've got no judgment against people who do. It's people who are watching this that, that still fuck with their, you know, illicit substances. It's whatever, you do you. For me, I don't. It's a bright line. I've made the decision, which means that in situations where that may take place, I don't have to make the decisions, done. It doesn't matter how many drinks I've had or um, whatever. Peer pressure is non-existent. I've already made the decision. So that's just one, one easy example. Another one is cold showers. I've made the decision. I don't miss a day. I don't have warm shower. I, I always, at the very least, finish on cold. I always have cold exposure in the morning. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to negotiate with myself every day. It's a bright line. Um,
1: I don't eat junk food.
0: I don't eat um, McDonald's burgers, KFC, anything like that. i got no It's not from a place to judge, but it's a decision that I've made. I've got these bright lines. Once you've got those bright lines, it, the interesting paradox is this. Discipline actually creates freedom because once you've got that structure and that discipline of I just do not go outside these bright lines, everything else is fluid. Everything else is flexible. You can make decisions, you can pivot, you can adjust, and you don't have to judge yourself in the moment because you're still operating within those bright lines. So really simply, this pillar is about having those bright lines, which specifically to mental health means you will stop doing things or start doing things that add up to optimal brain chemistry, that that add up to to optimal mental health, right? The information's there, the pillars are there. These are some of my examples. There's there's other ideas to consider and digest, but you need bright lines that you just promise yourself you don't go outside of. The next one is the idea of mindfulness um, and really... I'm going to keep this one short because I think the, the biggest tip I can give you is to read the book, uh, The Resilience Project by Hugh Van Kohlenberg. Had him on my show as well, so if you want to dive in or wet your, wet your feet a little bit with his content, check out the Brain Taming podcast um, a few weeks back with uh, Hugh Van Kolenberg. The Resilience Project, it outlines this idea of gratefulness, empathy, and uh, mindfulness. So gratitude, empathy, and mindfulness, gem. I don't want to talk too much on it because it's not my content to share. I mean, obviously mindfulness ideas are spoken about um, throughout culture right now a lot, which is awesome. But I really like the way that Hugh kind of brings it all together with these practices of being more mindful in the moment, having gratitude journals and gratitude practices so actually identifying what we're grateful for and training our brain to notice what we're grateful for. It actually activates the reticular activating system. I don't know if this was in the book or not, but this is just my interpretation. The RAS, which is basically the brain's mechanism to... Focus on what's important. Easy example is if you buy a red Hyundai car, you're probably going to start to notice more red Hyundai cars because it has some level of importance to you now. Same is true if you start practicing things that you're grateful for, you'll start to notice that more and more. It's not hyperbole, it's not sort of a mystical idea, it's, it's real science. So gratitude is important. Uh, and then being really empathetic. You know, it goes back to, a kind of what we are talking about earlier, about connection and doing nice things for people. Um, those three pillars are huge. The next one, is arguably where I think most people fall down, as in it's probably the least prevalent in society, that um, I like to talk about really, really consistently, which is this idea of having constant learning and curiosity, approaching life, and even its challenges like the mental health problems you may be experiencing. This is the, this is what I found helpful, right? I feel like I speak so aggressively sometimes, I feel like I'm talking at you. It's not the case at all. I just. For me, it's been paramount um, to approach my own journey with post-concussion syndrome and the the dizzying, fatigue and and problems that come with that, the constant headaches. Um, And then in addition to the debilitating anxiety, depression that's arose from that experience, it's been really tough at times. And sometimes in the depth of it, it's hard to kind of change our state immediately. That's what's so insidious about really heightened levels of these mental health challenges, um, which is why it's important to get the cycle the right way and not continue that downwards. Um, When you're in that moment, it's really hard to kind of think too logically or change our state immediately. But for me, coming from a place of curiosity, you just going, why is this happening? What is the neurochemistry cocktail that's taking place? What did I do last week that's kind of led to this week feeling in a funk? What have I done previously that's helped me get out of funks? And having this constant curiosity has been really it has served me really well, and constantly learning, keeping my brain young and active. <coughs> I mean, has meant I haven't. It helps avoiding. It's helped to avoid sliding into, um, you know, more more uh, more bouts of depression and anxiety. So learning and curiosity is huge. That also requires staring nakedly at your inadequacies. So the way I like so this is kind of the takeaway from this point is if you can just look candidly, dispassionately at your inadequacies without any feeling one way or another, it allows you to see truth and then you can pivot and adjust from there. You may be able to see the things that you're doing wrong that are creating your mental state right now. Um, So just digest that, sit in and see if it sits with you okay. But for me, I found that really powerful to go, let me just stare at everything apart of me, figuratively speaking, um, nakedly, and, and work out what's working and what's not. And once you do that, not only can you make better decisions, but again, that sense of pride of like, I don't have my decision making entirely de- uh, driven by ego. Um, it's more important, it's, it's more about what it's actually gonna add up, add up to optimal brain chemistry and fulfillment. So give that some thought and then fall in love with learning. Train, train, train to fall in love with learning. And it sets you up for everything else that we want to do in life, including improving our own psychology. So the final takeaway on that pillar of learning and curiosity is this. What one to three things are you going to study and get curious about? That may change over time, but after this video, after hearing this, I'd love for you to let me know if you feel like connecting. What things, one thing or a couple of things, are you going to really dive into and get curious about? Is it another language? Is it learning the piano? Is it studying the brain as intensely as I've been doing over the last couple of years? What is it? Let me know. The next pillar, just following on from that, is to study the brain. So I encourage you to do that regardless. Um, Why? Well, applied knowledge equals power, okay? So the more you know and understand something, the more opportunity that you have, the more arsenal of ideas you can kind of pull from to execute on any one given moment, okay? So knowledge, or at least applied knowledge, is power. The other idea here is that mental health can be looked at as brain health. Now, it can be controversial, but if you look at the work of Dr. Daniel Amen, I encourage you to check out, um, framing mental health as brain health becomes more tangible. And even though there's really really important social things that have an impact on that, like connection and um, things of that nature, looking at its impact on our neurology makes it, for me anyway, a lot more understandable um, and, and gives me a, a clearer idea of what I can do to shift um, my brain function and it makes it less about I'm broken I don't know why to yeah I feel I feel horrible in this moment but I know why I know what's wrong and I know what can help get me out of this albeit uh, it may take some time so that framing of looking at mental health as brain health has been really powerful the other importance of studying the brain is it avoids the trap of ambiguity. Cause I feel like ambiguity and not having a sense of agency or control is one of the biggest culprits for particularly, you know, anxiety, depression. Like it's this not knowing what situations are gonna bring. It's just not knowing and not being hopeful that you're going to feel better ever. If you're in a really dark kind of um, overwhelming sense of depression, it's, it, it almost by definition is a sense of hopelessness uh, and not being able to explain it and this lack of belief that it will ever change. So when you study the brain, it gives you a sense of agency, and you can start putting things in place. It becomes less about trying to emotionally get yourself up and you know up and going with nothing tangible. It, like you can sink up to some really clear ideas, knowing that what you're doing is having a slow but sure process and impact um, on your brain function. And then as a byproduct of that, you know um, the right neuroco- the neurochemical cocktail is going to be in place, and now mental health is going to be in a far more uh, optimal position. And then the last pillar. And yes, I do have a change of outfit. Unfortunately, the video bloody cut out before I um, before I wrapped yesterday. So it is the following day from what you've just been watching. So I need to re-record this last one, but I had to make sure I did it. One, because I'd already established there was 12 pillars and we've done 11, we've covered 11 here. Um, but probably more importantly, it is super potent and there's a lot of value in what we're gonna unpack here briefly now. And that final pillar is this idea of changing your, or our, narrative slash identity how we see ourselves there's this weird need i think i've touched on it a few times um, in all kinds of content this need for humans to act in congruence with how we see ourselves so any behavioral change is not going to be long lasting and certainly any psychological change is not going to be long lasting uh, unless the perception of ourself changes now that sounds very broad and esoteric i've had a a number of conversations on the podcast with previous guests like anthony trucks comes to mind who does a lot of work with Um, uh, changing identity, because it is a process, it's a separate piece of content, but until that happens, it's very difficult to expect long-lasting changes in anything, Um, and obviously in this particular subject matter we're talking about any long-lasting change in our overall mental well-being. So how we see ourselves matters, and essentially what I'm talking about is the narrative that we tell ourselves. Right, we all hear about positive thinking, positive self-talk. These things are super important. The only challenge is that it gets too, um, too difficult to understand what to do or what to implement. But for me, there's a couple of things that I'd like to leave you with that I find really valuable to start shifting your perception of yourself. Until the idea that you are depressed or you are anxious or you have a certain condition changes, you will be trapped in that. And that may sound aggressive and um, dispassionate, but as I touched on at the start of this video, I'm coming from a place of my own journey. I am in the trenches and I've, I've been through unimaginable um, depression and it is, it is crazy. I'm not, I'm not too ashamed to admit that um, by any stretch of the imagination, but I know how difficult it is to, to get through it. And so even in that example, until my identity shifted from I'm a depressed person, I have depression, I have these things, uh, or these circumstances, or even my story or narrative of these are the reasons why, my head trauma, these subsequent biological shifts, there's a, there are a real thing. That's the most sinister thing about um, st- uh, our narratives is sometimes that they're valid, but it's not empowering. So we need to shift that to something that is empowering. So very broad scope. I don't like the way I've explained it, but I'm gonna leave it there. Oh, one quick tip, sorry, I'll leave you with is this. I, almost always, at every opportunity possible, I like to articulate things. There's three things that change our state. One's physiology, so moving the body. One's our focus, where energy goes, uh, or where attention goes, energy flows. And the third is our language, whether it's written down in text or, of course, the spoken word. word. I always, where possible, like to say things like, I'm the kind of person that. And I really encourage you to, to sit with that and start executing that every single day. It doesn't have to be bullshit and stuff that isn't true just yet, but it could be something along the lines of the following. As opposed to staring in the mirror, suggesting I'm someone that's super happy right now, when that might not be even remotely relatable from where you um, are currently at. What you can start looking at is, I'm the kind of person that does sad things. I'm the kind of person that does daily practice, practices towards my mental health, even when I don't feel like it. You're not supposed to feel like it. Half, this, half the battle is doing the work that we don't feel like doing in any endeavor particularly when it comes to rebuilding psychological wellness or mental health um so start using that in your daily practice i'm the kind of person that i'm the kind of person that goes to bed on time i'm the kind of person that eats healthy i'm the kind of person that prioritizes my exercise I'm the kind of person that prioritizes my rest when i need to i'm the kind of person that has bright lines and doesn't go outside them i'm the kind of person that so that one little tip or strategy, a little nitbit, I suppose, it's a very tangible way and an easy way to start shifting the identity that we get trapped in, the narrative, the story we tell ourselves. Um, and I hope that gives that kind of idea that we hear a lot about some substance and something to work with. Change the language, not only does that change your neurological state or psychological state in the moment, but over time, we're rewiring our neural pathways. We're literally shifting the way our brain works and as a byproduct of that, the way that we think, which is of course what this video is about, right? And then as a result of that thinking improving at a subconscious level, we're gonna see our physiological symptoms improve. Far more energy, less fatigue, and certainly a lot more a lust for life. So I'll leave that there there's my 12 pillars that constitute my comeback if you will to a state of, of mental well-being and I hopefully I hope that it's useful in some capacity for you if it is please let me know in the comments below reach out to me personally um, yeah you know, it's an important subject matter I'm always happy to riff on so hopefully you enjoyed